Why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9 is what we're going to be looking at. Isaiah chapter 9. Tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing here this morning. And then we'll jump in. Um, We've been in a series over the past uh, three weeks. This is week number three. uh, Looking at what we're basically calling uh, his kingdom will have no end. It's the idea of focusing on the season, what we're calling Advent. You know, we have for years... Uh, spent time over the Christmas season of reminding ourselves as to why Jesus has come into this world. The church historically has always paused to consider and to reflect upon why God has come into this world. The idea behind that is to uh, not just simply indulge in ideas and concepts of the culture, but to be feeding our souls in terms of what it looks like to be worshipers of Jesus to give ourselves understanding of scripture as to who God is and what God has done for us. And so over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at this subject of his kingdom will have no end. We've been in a series on Sunday morning prior to that, uh, looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to be jumping back into that at the beginning of the year. Uh, But for right now, the next uh, two more weeks, so today and then next uh, Saturday night, which is uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to be jumping back into this. It'll be the very last message of this series, and then we'll be getting back into the book of Acts. Uh, we've been looking at basically themes, uh, four themes that we'll be taking a look at. So if you guys, the ushers look like they're already. so if you guys don't have Bibles, you can raise your hand. Ushers would be happy to get you guys Bibles. Um, we've been looking at themes, and the four themes that we've been really focusing on uh, over this season are the theme of brokenness, the theme of yearning, what it looks like to uh, direct the uh, energy that comes from brokenness or the brokenness that comes from brokenness as to turn that towards God and let God become kind of the fulfiller of our hopes, of our aspirations, of our dreams as we look to him. Uh, Thirdly, today we're going to be looking at the subject of hope. Next week we'll be taking a look at the subject of joy. And each one of these kind of build upon themselves. uh, And they're all part of this theme of the Bible as we see throughout scripture, the idea that the world that we live in is full of brokenness because it's full of sin. Um, but we also see that in the midst of brokenness, we can allow that brokenness to overcome or to, and destroy us, or we can see that brokenness as an opportunity to turn our hearts towards solutions. In this context, we turn our hearts towards God. And what we call that is yearning, looking to, yearning for God to intervene, for God to do something. And then thirdly, what we'll be taking a look at here today is the subject of hope. The subject of hope. And uh, the funny thing is, as this season, this time of year comes around, Christmas is one of the seasons where, on the one hand, it's very joyous for a lot of people. On the other hand, Christmas can be very troublesome. It's uh, not an easy season because it associates your life with grief and loss and things that you once used to enjoy, now no longer enjoy. Maybe it's uh, connected to the loss of a loved one or family member, someone that you've been connected with, and this type of year has this tendency to bring about this awareness. I was just talking with someone a couple days ago, and they were saying how this season is really painful for them because it is completely associated with the idea of loss for them. So coming around Christmas is not easy for them. It's, it's full of despair, and uh, it's important for us to understand that. So even though there are moments for some here today we're excited about the theme, the concept, the idea of Christmas for others of us, Uh, Not so much. It's painful. In the midst of that, though, I want to look at the subject of hope because the idea of hope is a biblical concept. It's all throughout the Bible, and it's deeply connected to the theme of of Christmas. And the reason why it's deeply connected to the theme of God coming to this world is because it's connected to God's promises. God promising 
to undo the evil, the wickedness, the brokenness, the satanic influences in this world and to replace it with something else. That's what we see. And what I want to do in just a moment, we're going to read a few narratives that kind of bring us through this theme of hope. Before we do that, what I want to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the definition of hope. I think it's important for us to have a kind of a working definition when we're talking about the word of hope because many of us, obviously, we have different influences and different concepts as to what hope is. So I think it would be important for us to kind of get on the same page as far as what we're talking about in terms of the concept of hope. So I'm going to look at sort of what I'll describe as a biblical definition of hope. And obviously, this is distinct from just a general uh, view of hope in terms of our world. So definition of hope or a biblical definition of hope. First of all, I would say what it's not. First of all, hope is not the same thing as optimism, right? We're told that there are basically two types of people in this world. There are uh, pessimists, right? They always see the glass as half full, and there are optimists. They are the ones that see the glass as half, uh, or sorry, a pessimist half empty, uh, optimist half full. They see, them, they see the world in, through this lens where hopefully everything is going to get better. And that's the concept of optimism. And yet what I would say is that the idea of biblical hope really has nothing to do with optimism. In fact, I would go so far to push even further to say, for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, optimism is not a proper response. That is radically distinct from hope. And here's what I would say. Optimism is sort of this this desire that somehow everything will just get better. It's based not necessarily on anything concrete. It's just this inner desire. Maybe you're wired to just kind of hope Kind of a Pollyanna, if you, were, if you ever remember that movie. I had two daughters, so we watched that movie a lot, Pollyanna. She was always this hopeful optimist that everything is just somehow going to get better. And yet, what happens when everything does not get better? What happens when everything that we hope for does not actually go the way that we want? What happens, let's say, for example, if you are a well-known prophet that is identified as the greatest of all prophets, and yet you get your head cut off. His name is John the Baptist. He's hoping in God, and yet it does not go well for him. He dies. He dies in prison. Uh, there's a song, uh, when the praises go up, the blessings come down, right? Recent song. It's a great song. But the fact of the matter is, what happens when praises go up and curses come down? What happens if that's our life? So the idea is that optimism is actually not a proper response for a believer. Hope is. And I'll try to define what that looks like. So optimism is not a biblical definition of hope, nor is wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is kind of the idea like, I just hope things will get someday better in my life. Again, a variation of optimism. So what is biblical hope? I want to start with a definition. I'll try to begin to work my way through this a little bit. And it's actually really complex and beautiful. All right, so the idea of hope, here's what I would say. In fact, I'll come back to this definition in a second here. There's a couple of things. There's actually a couple of words that are in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, that are uh, the word that we translate oftentimes as the word hope. And I'm going to try to get them right. Kava and tikva. Kava and tikva. They're actually, uh, the one word, tikva, is a root of the, has a root of the other word. But these, both of these words are really fascinating. And kind of in some of the research and the history that I had done and trying to unpack and understand a little bit about these two words, um, is one of the words, the root word is actually translated to gather, Okay, think about it this way, the idea of gathering. What happens when you gather, when you go out and you bring together a handful of things together? Uh, So that word is actually translated in the book of Genesis chapter 1 where it says that God gathered the waters 
in one place. It's the same word uh, that's also translated elsewhere as hope, surprisingly. Here's another way. Uh, Jeremiah 3.17, God says that he's going to uh, gather the nations. Um, or Isaiah 60, verse 9, ships, ships, all these, like a seaport, ships gather in a seaport. It's actually the exact same word that elsewhere is translated the word hope. It's kind of a, an interesting way. And why? Why is it just translated that way? Another way in which this uh, variation of this word is also translated is in Joshua chapter 2, verse 18 and 2.21. Get this. It's translated as the word cord. Scarlet cord, remember the story? It's the scarlet cord that's put down. It's actually the Hebrew word uh, that we translate as hope. Why? So think about this. The, there's, a, there's a theme, there's an idea behind the Hebrew etymology of this word. The idea of gathering, bringing together various things together, or the idea of a cord. So a cord or a rope are three or four various strands of rope coming together and forming something strength, strong. Uh, fortitude, something that has, is built, something that has the ability to have endurance and stability. That's where we get the word hope from. You guys following this? It's a really an amazing word when you think about this. Because this, this is how the Bible would define the concept of hope. That hope is not independent. It's not optimism. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just that this determination that someday something will go right in my life. It's bigger than that, more complex, more beautiful than that. It actually involves uh, a, a coalition, a coming together, a coalescing of various ideas, of various concepts, constructs coming together to form this unbreakable reality that we call hope. It's an amazing word. So with that being said, what's, what's a, what, a couple of ways, one of the ways in which this comes up is Psalm 25, verse 21, where he says this, the psalmist says, my hope Lord is in you. So hope is connected to Yahweh. It's connected to the promises of God. And we'll look more at this in just a second here. So let's go back to kind of a definition. So here's a definition that I kind of put together of uh, various ideas and concepts coming together. Hopefully it'll make sense. Uh, so I would say this hope is a confidence, um, if, if you want. I, I would also add the word in between the word A and confidence. I would put a defiant confidence. It's a defiant confidence that God will make good on what he said he would do, despite the current darkness and disappointment. So, so listen to that again. Hope is a defiant confidence that God will make good on what he said he would do, uh, despite the current darkness and disappointment. So, so hope is not uh, some sort of vapid optimism, it's not some sort of wishful thinking. It's actually deeply connected to the very character and promises and nature of God himself, of Yahweh himself, that God would do something for us, that God will step in, God will make right, God will bring justice, God will do good. And it's tethering, gathering, bringing together, connecting yourself to the very character and reality and personalness of God. The, the very fabric of who God is, the very fiber of who God is, we are connecting ourselves to that. And therefore, there is this bold defiance that allows us to say that no matter what type of despair or brokenness or disbelief I may be battling, I will choose to trust in something that God has promised in spite of what I may be feeling or what I may be presently, currently seeing or experiencing in my life. So, so you guys following so far? Okay, let's keep going on. Um, what I want to do right now is a, kind of as a side note, we're actually, interestingly enough, 
said throughout the scripture, there are certain things that we're not to put our hope in. Here, I'll just kind of throw these out real quickly. The verses should be next to them, so you can just kind of do your own research on them as well. So we're not to place our hope in riches. No matter how rich you are, no matter how much money you might gather, don't place your hope in these things. Don't tether your life to them. Don't gather yourself together with these things because they are transient. Idols, foreign powers, military might. Uh, The idea of what type of strength, military strength we have, the types of bombs, the types of vehicles, the types of weaponry. Uh, this, This may be something for the nations, but not for followers of Yahweh. Like, we don't put our hope and our confidence in these things. Our princes or kings or whatever, rulers or other humans. These are all various things that we're actually urged. Do not put your hope where you do not tether yourself. Do not gather yourself together to these various things. They will, at some point, let you down. So, I want to jump into a biblical narrative and just let the story of hope begin to arise in our understanding as we kind of jump in. So, I want to... I want to go to a uh, traditional common passage out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, that most of us are familiar with during this season of the year to consider, to think about this. I'm just going to read through it. I'm just going to let Isaiah tell you the story or tell you the psalm or the, or the, uh, the song in which he's going to be talking about. Now, a little bit of backstory. Isaiah was writing during a season of life in which the, uh, in which the, the Jewish people were actually threatened by having their basic existence obliterated by a massive nation empire called Assyria. And so the Assyrians were threatening to overcome and to overtake and destroy the Jewish nation. I've said this before, it'd be kind of like Canada. If Canada mustered up strength and they're like, we're going to take over portions of America, and they came down into uh, Washington, made it way down to, uh, you know, maybe even Northern California, began to actually take away people from their dwellings and took them off to, I don't know, Saskatchewan or something like that. And they're, they're no longer able to thrive and live within the current context in which they lived in. So this is what was happening with the Jewish people. There was, they were under threat of having their entire livelihoods completely undermined and destroyed and swept away. And uh, another way you can think about this was they were in the midst of, of, of brokenness. Their sin had brought about brokenness. And this kind of led to them yearning, longing, calling out to God, to Yahweh, to do something, to intervene. And every once in a while, you would have these uh, notable prophets slash poets, we call them prophets, kind of begin to come on the scene. They begin to write. They speak. They write as inspired by God. God speaks through them. And they oftentimes have this vivid imagination of what life would look like when Yahweh would begin to do what Yahweh does which is to prove his fidelity, to show his love, to demonstrate his compassion, his kindness, to do for the oppressed what only God can do for the oppressed, which is to deliver them, to set them free. So Isaiah begins to imagine what would it look like for Yahweh to step in to the darkness, right, into the brokenness, into the mess that the people of Israel not only are in the midst of, but also... Uh, are, are going into in terms of their life and livelihood completely being threatened by way of this Assyrian empire. So he begins to imagine, he starts off in verse 1, he says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. So in your mind, just think about, remember those two words, right? So you're wondering right now, what are those two names, right? What is Zebulun and what is Naphtali? These are just 
areas of land that are associated with the people of Israel. But just remember them for right now, and we'll come back to them. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land beyond the Jordan of Galilee of the nations. So what he's saying is that in former times, in the past, God has allowed for the land that once belonged to the people of Israel to be undermined, to be overtaken by way of the Assyrians, by way of these threatenings, by way of all of the things that they had... Uh, they, they were prone to being uh, taken away from them by way of uh, the nation of, of Assyria. So God's saying, in the, or Isaiah is saying of God, that in the latter times, God allowed these things to happen, but in the, in the future times, in the la- God is going to do something different. He's going to intervene. He's going to actually bring about a radical transformation uh, that will be completely a part of his fulfillment of his kindness. So he goes on in verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness... They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So the first part of this song or story or imagination is that he imagines people in the midst of darkness. Anybody feels like your life is in the midst of darkness? This is great because what he's saying is that just like the people of Israel were in this midst of darkness, God is saying one of the first ways in which you can begin to identify that life is going to begin to break in is a light will begin to shine in darkness. So he's going to describe is that on them this light has shone. Verse 3, it says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divided spoil. So just pause and think about these metaphors here. He says they increased joy as in the joy of harvest. So you imagine if you lived in an agri- uh, agricultural uh, uh, community where uh, you spend most of your time raising and harvesting and bringing forth uh, the, the produce, you know, the fruit of the vine or whatever. And at the time of harvest, it's a time of great celebration. You work really hard, and finally now you get to actually enjoy the fruit of the harvest. So it's a full of joy and celebration. What he's saying is that when God begins to step in, when God begins to fulfill what God promises that he will do, uh, he will subvert the brokenness, subvert the destruction, and God will then begin to bring about an awareness, this overwhelming awareness of joy. Joy will begin to replace all the despair. And he says, and it will be like glad when they divide spoil. So again, um, many of us, I would imagine, probably have not had this luxury of like dividing spoil, what that means. Uh, but typically when you would go in and like do battle, you'd overtake a certain people group, whatever, uh, you would then afterwards divide their, their goods, their weapons, their shields, their whatever. Uh, as is what he's saying, it's obviously a time of, of joy. He's, again, borrowing metaphors, idioms of the time and of the day that were familiar to them. So you can kind of understand a little bit. Now, next slide, verse 4, he goes on, he says, But for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So here's another promise that he's saying, is that there's going to be a, a time of peace, that rather than perpetuating uh, a militaristic state, he's saying that there is going to come a time where the very elements that were used for battle, uh, the warrior's boot, all of these things are going to be burned as fuel for fire. It's going to become a time of celebration. Next slide, as he continues his story. Verse 6, he says, For unto us... A child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. And there's four titles that are actually given to him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I can spend weeks just teaching on this, which I'm not, but you just, just for the sake of our time, think about these, 
these, uh, these titles that define whoever this is. Again, obviously, we know the end of the story. But what he's saying from Isaiah's point of view, that when God shows up, when God will make good on his promises, this is what it will look like. It will look like a light shining in darkness. It will look like peace and replacement of war and destruction. It will look like wonderful counselor coming. The idea is, is someone that gives good, wise counsel. Um, uh, he's the mighty God. He's the embodiment of Yahweh himself. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. We tend to think of peace as the absence of war. But in the Hebrew concept of peace, peace is far more rich and far more nuanced than just simply the lack of something that's negative or bad. Uh, peace involves friendship, involves covenant, involves a rich dynamic relationship with the one that, that you were once maybe at war with or at odds with. Peace is our, our people coming together where there's actual harmony within, not just amongst the community, but within the land, among the people, among the people groups. There's this rich reality of peace. In verse 7, he says, Of the increase of his government, government and the peace, there will be no end. In the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The idea here is that God is saying, I promise that this is what I will do. I will keep my word. I do not lie. God would say elsewhere, I do not lie. That this is a word of hope spoken to a people that are in the midst of darkness, spoken to a people that are in the midst of losing everything. This is what makes hope so important to the life of those of us that are followers of God. It's, it's, it's absolutely connected to the life of faith that we have this defiant hope that God will overcome all of these obstacles in order to do what God promises that he will do. Next slide, we'll take a look at another little passage here, Isaiah chapter 35, great passage by the way. Uh, again, carrying on in a similar theme, he goes on in another type of a song where he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Any feeble knees, any weak hands, the image of feeble knees are knees that are shock, er, uh, uh, shaking uh, tremendously. Imagine, remember the old cartoons where a cartoon character is having wobbly or shaking knees. So he's saying, strengthen uh, the weak hands, make, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and do not fear. Behold your God. He will come and save you. So who will come? Will God send a delegate? Will God send an alias? He says that God himself, Yahweh, will come. So these are promises that God has made to his people. So the reality was, was how is Yahweh going to do this? In verse 5, he says, and what will it look like? Another question to nuances. What will it look like when Yahweh shows up? If God is going to be the one that's going to come and make good on these promises... If Yahweh is going to be the one to bring uh, God's people who are plummeted in darkness, out of darkness into light, what will it look like? Here's what he says. It will look like the eyes of the blind being opened. It will look like the ears of the deaf being unstopped. It will look like the lame man leaping like a deer and the tongue of the mute singing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is such an incredible uh, imagery of what God will do. And all of these would have been uh, passages that would have spurned on hope in the hearts and the lives of followers of, of God. So the last slide I want to look at, and we'll wrap this up. Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses one, uh, 14 through 17. He goes on, he says this. 
So remember we talked about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He starts off and he says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, so the context of this is John the Baptist um, was this forerunner. He was this one, he was Jesus' cousin, um, but he went around communicating that God is going to break forth very soon, that God is going to do something very quickly. And the question was, what's it going to look like when God shows up, when God does what God claims he's going to do? Uh, John was going around trying to boost people's morale and hope. Now, John did not have a very clear understanding as to exactly what God would do. John himself seemingly and apparently later on in his life became confused as well, uh, which that's a whole other message for another time. But the point of the matter is John was trying to point people's hearts and minds back to uh, God's promises. John ends up uh, speaking out against the political powers that be. John ends up being thrown in prison. And John ends up, uh, at some point, dying in prison. Um, And it was during that particular period of time that we're told that this begins to happen. Jesus then responds. And it says in verse 14, again, it says, So that that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, and the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, they have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, and on them the light has dawned. In verse 17, it goes on and says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, and this was Jesus' message, the kingdom of God. Repent. The kingdom of, God's, uh, God, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the idea, the picture, going back to the titles that were given to whatever it would look like for when Yahweh comes, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, All of these were names and titles that were given to a king. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, look, God's kingdom, God's reign. You want to know what it looks like when God shows up, when God begins to reign? Right. We just entered into, we just came out of a political season. We have a new president, all right? So there's all this question, what will happen now? Some full of dread, some full of hope, I guess. But the point of the matter is, at the end of the day, whoever gets nominated or brought in, they always come with a game plan. Here's the game plan. Here's what we propose. Here's what we will aim at doing. Jesus, the same thing. The question was, when God makes good on his promises, what will it look like? What will it look like for Yahweh to come? And this is exactly what the New Testament writers are basically staging. They're saying that when God makes good on his promises, it will look like Jesus. It will look like Going to those that had blind eyes and being given sight, it will look like those that were alienated being brought back in. It will look like those that were marginalized and shunned and ousted being welcomed to come to the table. This is what it looks like for God to come. So again, the point that I'd make is this, is that God seeks to bring us into a reality of hope. I want to finish with a thought in terms of just some practical things to consider and to think about with regard to the context of this idea of hope. So the nature of biblical hope, I think, involves at least three things, and I'll summarize with these. One, it involves the promises of God's deliverance. I don't have these up on the screen, but the promises of God's deliverance involves God promising to do something. In other words, God's promise, God's word. So the question is, is God, can God be taken at his word? Or does God lie? Is God like us? Does God give statements or words or promises that he himself maybe intends to keep but cannot keep because he lacks the power or the ability or the know-how? Does God 
lie? Does he just go around saying things just to gather an audience of people? Like we do sometimes, right? We boost ourselves to make ourselves appear to be bigger than what we really are. Again, that's the whole point of like Instagram and Facebook because we spend a lot of time editing our profile to make ourselves look bigger and better and greater and smarter and wiser and more beautiful than what we truly are. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't lie. He promises. And when God promises, when he makes a statement, he will do exactly what he promises that he will do. So again, the nature of biblical hope is deeply connected. Think about the strand, the cord, the tethering, the binding. What are we to bind ourselves to? First of all, the nature of biblical hope is that we bind ourselves to the promises of God. The second thing is the timing of God's deliverance. This is where it gets really challenging for us because God does not always do things on our time schedule. We live in a culture where we want instantaneous results. Now, just for the record, Isaiah wrote some 700 years before Jesus came on the planet. So just want to think about this for a second. 700 years. So the question is, for the Jewish people, how long do they have to wait for God to make good on his promise? Right? A couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years. No, 700 years. Just think about that. Think about it in the context of your life. What are the things that you're hoping for, that you're waiting for, that we're oftentimes tapping our foot, frustrated with God because he's not moving on our time schedule? The fact of the matter is, is that hope is deeply connected to this confidence that God's timing is better than, more significant, more meaningful, more purposeful, more life-giving than my timing. In fact, my understanding of timing is, is, is grossly flawed. It's very similar analogy would be like the timing of a very young child, maybe two to four years old, connected with mom and dads. You know, mom and dad, can I have, you know, something? And then mom and dad says, no, not right now. And then five minutes later, the child goes back, can I have this now? Like, not right now. And then they keep going through the cycle over and over and over again because a child just does not have a concept of time. Mom and dad has a far better, more comprehensive understanding of timing. And the same thing is true with God. So again, think about what are the areas in our lives where you may be losing hope because it's deeply connected to an insufficient, inadequate concept of time. We're frustrated with God because he's not working within our time schedule. So again, the nature of biblical hope not only involves the promise of God's deliverance, it involves the timing of God's deliverance, and thirdly, it involves this creativity of God's deliverance. How God creatively works and moves, are ways beyond our comprehension. Look, God is beauty. God works in beautiful ways. God makes beautiful things. God does things in ways that we don't always understand. I talked a little bit about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a flawed understanding as to what Jesus was going to do. It's one of the reasons why when John was actually in prison waiting to be beheaded. That's literally how he ended his life, with his head on a platter, ISIS style. And he's waiting, trying to figure out, Jesus, is he really the deliverer? Is he really the fulfillment of Yahweh come to make good on the promises that Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these other great prophets had prophesied? Is he really the one? Or should we actually end up looking and investing in someone else? So here's what John's probably, most likely, most scholars would agree, that John was literally waiting for Jesus to begin to, be, uh, to start his violent overthrow of the Roman government. 
He was waiting for Jesus to be this like militia, to lead this militia, to begin to fight and to resist. Now, again, John would not have been entirely flawed in his thinking like that because that's exactly what David would have done. That's how every other king of Israel would have operated and acted. That's how Judas Maccabeus, uh, which, you know, actually, if you're familiar with Hanukkah, that's where that came from, that these guys were military leaders that would go out and begin to fight and violently resist and revolt against the enemies. So John's waiting. When is Jesus going to begin to overthrow violently the enemy of Rome? So he sends a message to Jesus. He says, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the coming king, the one that will set the world aright? And then Jesus sends back a message to John. It's kind of code. He says, go back and tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. And he says, blessed are you, John, if you're not offended of me. What's Jesus saying? saying, John, remember the promises of Isaiah that when God shows up, the blind will see, the lame will walk. But right now, you're looking for something that's different, that's less beautiful than what's happening here. God is creative. God works in creative ways. That oftentimes we may miss what God is up to in our lives because we are looking for something that may or may not be according to how God intends for it to be. God is creative. God is beautiful. So the nature of hope is tying, tethering, gathering ourselves to this complex beauty of God's promises, his timing, and his creativity, and coming together, binding ourselves to these things, is what allows us to have this hope, to lift up our hopes. Paul, later on in the book of Romans, would say that uh, hope is deeply connected to a sense of endurance, that hope is what God is producing in our hearts. It's what God is creating in our hearts but it's deeply connected oftentimes to wrestling, feeling let down sometimes, and keep on going back to saying, God, but this is who you are. Your promises are good. Your ways are righteous. You, all the things that you do are good and beautiful, and I don't quite understand it. And yet, God, somehow in the midst of all this, I don't, even though I don't understand, it doesn't make sense to me, I will trust, I will tether, I will tie myself to you. That's the nature of biblical hope. It's not optimism. It's not just wishful thinking. Hope is deeply connected to resurrection. And yet hope oftentimes feels like Good Friday. It oftentimes feels like our world is caving in, crushing down, breaking apart, because that's what happens, is that we are tested in the midst of that. And that yet God, through the end of that, he proves himself to be good. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God making good on his promises, saying that, yes, though the world in all of its ways has turned against me, I have not turned against the world. I've turned towards the world. I've not opted to destroy and obliterate and start an entire new world in some other parallel universe. I have chosen to redeem and restore this one by entering into it in completeness taking upon myself human form, and engaging in the very suffering that they themselves have engaged in. To become part of the solution. This is what Christmas is all about. It's God coming near to us. So as we wrap this up, just think about that. Where are you at in your life? What are the things that you are facing right now? What are the various circumstances? What are the issues of disbelief or the areas of uh, despair that you find yourselves troubled and weighted down by? And ask yourself, what has God spoken? 
One final thing I would say is this. Is this is a great passage. I'll end with this. Psalm 42.5. I think I might even have it up here. Um, this is a great psalm because here's what it, the psalmist basically says. I, I love this because this is like the classic uh, proof text to just say you have to learn how to be good preachers. All of you, right? Some of you guys will never stand up in front of a crowd of people. But if anything, you have to learn how to become a good preacher to yourself. That means you have to learn how to preach hope to yourself. Here's what the psalmist did. He says, why are you cast down? This is a psalm where he's like speaking to himself. So if you ever are caught talking to yourself, it's okay. You're in really great company. So the psalmist is, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Then he says, hope in God. Hope in God. Why are you so troubled? Why are you so cast down? Why are you overcome by despair and doubt and discouragement? Trust, hope in God. Defiantly place confidence in God in spite of all of these things. Because our hope is not vapid optimism. It's not wishful thinking. Our hope is something. Biblical hope is connected to the very character and the promises and the creativity and the beauty of God. So Christmas is. That's why Israel was able to find their hope and their substance in God. I invite you, as the nature of the gospel is always, it's an invitation to come, to take a look at, to examine your own heart, to examine maybe the current state or condition that your heart is in right now and compare it to the biblical story and say if it's not in right comparison to like what Jesus said, to repent, which means to turn away from all of these other false uh, loyalties and turn to the very kingdom that he himself is saying, I've come to deliver, I've come to bring, I've come to invite you to enter in, to be washed, to be made clean, to become new, become a new person. So it's an invitation to respond to God. So I don't know where you're at, I don't know what the circumstances are that you are going through in your life currently, but this is a time to do business with God, to turn the angst, to turn the grief, to turn the sorrow, if it's there, into energy that focuses on the promises, kindness, the goodness of God. To find hope. Again, hope is not this sense of happiness. Sometimes it looks like a dogged determination that I will trust God because God is trustworthy in spite of what I feel, in spite of what circumstances are dictating to me, because this is who God is. It's his nature, it's his character to pull through, to do good, to do right. No one who follows God will have their life ended in a destructive way. Let me say that one other thing, one other way. That doesn't mean that all things will go good in this life for you right now, as it did not go well for John the Baptist. But did he come to a good end? Not in his life, but in the end, he's with God. It didn't go his way, but Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets because he had, even though it was flawed and there are things that he failed to see in his fullness, God brought him to a final good end. And that's the hope that we have, that God will bring us ultimately to a place of newness. That's what he promises. So I want to invite you to respond to that, to be brought into that storyline. If you're not in that story, if you're on the outside of that, if your life is one that is just filled with despair and brokenness and sin and defilement, to ask God to wash you, to cleanse you, to transform you, to make you new. So we're going to respond. Why don't we all stand and have the worship team come on up and we'll sing a few songs and we'll respond by partaking uh, communion. It's a way to remind ourselves that this was the path 
that God had gone to bring about our wholeness. That God comes into this world, Jesus takes the bread and the cup, and he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this. It's his way of inviting us, saying, come, partake of me. Come, enter into the fact that I will be broken. I will know what it's like to feel broken, just like you feel broken. But through my brokenness, I will, through my power, my love, my grace, my kindness, God's act of new life, bring about newness of life in you. It's an invitation to receive, to respond, to worship, to love, to do business with God. So let me pray. We'll sing. God, thank you for welcoming us. Thank you, God, for your love. And we respond, God, in, in worship. Back to you.